Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 27th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 26, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 19, episode 27, or what the German regionalization team named Variations on Relations. And I'm your host, John. First, a little bit of bureau business. You know, thanks to everyone who enjoyed our April Fool's Day switch over to the Dougie Love podcast. My uh, fan fiction-y reviews of the imaginary spinoff sitcom Twin Peaks Las Vegas. I don't do fan fiction typically. And, um, you know, typically I don't really read much of it either. Because as a general rule, I personally tend to think the fan fiction is more for the writer than for the reader. Um, But, you know, in this case, I had a need. So I wrote. And um, Twin Peaks season three had just ended. It hurt. And um, it seemed like the old Twin Peaks might have actually been erased. So, you know, like all these feelings inside my head, you know, about three days after the finale, I threw out a tweet about Twin Peaks Las Vegas as a joke, a way to, you know, heal, basically, <laughs> and you know, thinking that maybe I can cocoon into the funny parts of Twin Peaks while I process the tough stuff. And, um, you know, it took root. It became a happy place to go for a few months. So um, consider Twin Peaks Las Vegas my Nadine in high school period. And uh, I hope you had some fun with it. And, you know, if you didn't, well, I completely get that, too. And, uh, you know, we're back to normal from now on. So, uh, yeah. Now, what back to normal consists of is in episode 26, the lawmen discover the petroglyph. And the Wyndham Earl was the one that dug it up before he explains about the lodges to Leo and future victim heavy metal youth. Catherine gets help with a puzzle box from Pete and Harry while they're not, you know, when they're not looking for closure over Josie. Major Briggs knows some things about the petroglyph. Bobby forces Shelley to enter Miss Twin Peaks. Ben directs the Miss Twin Peaks theme into environmentalism. Cooper learns about Earl's poem messages. Annie shares her past with Cooper on a boat date that Earl observes like a bird watcher. Dick hosts a wine tasting. Mike covertly explains Nadine's appeal. Wheeler gets a bad message while philosophizing with Cooper. Donna serves her mom too many peas during an argument. And the lawmen find a crate in a gazebo containing a giant chess piece containing heavy metal youth and a threat that next time it'll be someone they know. So looking at it from the wide lens of having already seen all the way through season three and final dossier and all that, what questions are we left with here? How does the solidifying of lodge lore expand our understanding? What else do we learn about Wyndham Earl's modus operandi? How is Miss Twin Peaks more than a beauty pageant? What are the ramifications of secrets? And What are the possibilities that grow from love? And of course, before we can really dig into that, we're going to look at the production history for the context of how this show was made at the time. 
this episode was the last one that was at least partially filmed before the show was put on hiatus in mid-February. The the cast noticeably jaded by now um, was probably worried about being canceled when this was being filmed. As uh, Phil Siegel from ABC noted, was a really close possibility uh, during during the filming of this episode. And, um, you know, the way the way the canceled shows don't always have their final episodes aired, it was a real possibility for everyone involved that they were filming something that would never actually be seen. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it just had to be a heavy, uh, a heavy vibe on all involved. And um, as far as how it was constructed, we have it written by Harley Payton and Mark Frost, and it was directed by Jonathan Sanger. So Sanger became involved because he was a producer on The Elephant Man, and I'm pretty sure that he brought the script over to Mel Brooks in order to get it financed in the first place. So um, he and Lynch have had a working relationship since, you know, the late 70s. And, um, you know, their, their friendship goes back that far, and it, it stayed feeling that way even during the production of the show. I mean, honestly, it was probably why Lynch trusted him with a Gordon scene. Um, but, you know, Sanger himself hasn't really said too much about it. Um, pretty much he, in reflections, he mentioned how much he loved how, um, uh, Kenneth Welsh just went for it. Uh, you know, he, he took the material and he, you know, just was wild. And, um, and, uh, Sanger actually directed Earl or, or uh, you know, Welsh to shoot that, um, shoot that crossbow arrow right at Ted Raimi into the uh, into the chess piece because he knew that the paper mache was uh, reinforced and able to handle it without actually injuring Raimi. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was an interesting safety concern that I noted. Um, as far as the writing goes, I assume that Mark Frost is credited here as a full script writer rather than, you know, just behind the scenes doing uh, edits on the final pass as he normally does. Uh, due to all of the Lodge mythology and, uh, you know, the, the stuff about about the Lodges and Briggs um, in the first two acts in particular. Now, I um, as far as Peyton's contributions, I assume that, um, you know, Peyton was the writer of the Cole and Shelley scene because he mentions in multiple interviews that they told him to write it in a way for Lynch to kiss Shelley. I I consider that scene actually pretty successful. Um, I fall on it being successful uh, because of you know of of the time that it was made. You know, the older man, the younger woman. You know, that that was an acceptable trope at the time. So you know, it, there there was no like Me Too concerns in anyone in the audience at the time. Um, you know, it was fairly chaste, all told. You know, it didn't go any further than that. It was just about a kiss rather than, you know, let's go back to my room or whatever, you know, what, whatever like that. It wasn't like that. So I'll kind of be okay with it. And, um, you know, the, the most important thing is that Manchin Amick was on board with the whole thing too. So, um, you know, her boundaries were not being trampled behind the scenes, uh, from, you know, anyone's recollection now or at the time or since. Yeah, so anyway, that's why I'm not going to give it any guff about that dynamic uh, when we're talking about it within the show. As far as our new character, Heavy Metal Youth, Ted Raimi has actually spoke about this um, 
in a few places. Um, in Essential Repton Plastic, he told John Thorne the story about how he got the role, how he was up for a teacher role somewhere else, uh, was told to get their ASAP. So he was like, you know, sitting in the lobby dressed like an English teacher, um, <laughs> you know, with actual rockers around him. And, um, you know, he, he said Lynch was there. So, you know, he assumed this was a lost cause and he just went for it. And um, he made everybody laugh so hard that he actually got a call that they wanted him for the part. And then he said they wanted him for multiple episodes, which he elaborated on uh, years later at, I believe it was uh, Pensacon. Um, I know that Em and Steve from Sparkwood and 21 talked about this fact, and I really trying to remember where they found it, but I'm pretty sure it was because of his appearance at the convention Pensacon, you know, around, you know, 2015 or earlier. Um, but anyway, he said that he was going to be um, in future episodes as a zombie kind of a character. So if there was going to be a season three, he apparently signed papers to do that. And that kind of gives a little bit of intrigue as far as what they were thinking about doing with um, probably also Wyndham Earl, um, you know, because, you know, he may have died. He may not have. He may be enthralled by Bob. You know, it's like there's all sorts of things. Having Earl as a uh, as a hench, I mean, uh, having Earl have a henchman in the form of heavy metal youth, zombie style, wouldn't be a bad, wouldn't be a, you know bad for the the humor, you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that, just a just a detail, um, you know. Speculate as you will. As far as what we actually got out of this episode on April eleventh of nineteen ninety one. This um, this aired to 7.9 million viewers. So the viewership numbers dropped from the previous two episodes, 9.8. But that didn't matter because the day before this episode aired, uh, Twin Peaks had been put on a different kind of hiatus by ABC. Um, you know, it'll be May when it's officially canceled, along with shows like China Beach. But um, the the network confidence was at an all time low. And um what they did was they pulled the the final two episodes of the show that would have aired in May from its original air dates in uh, May sweeps. And, um, you know, they decided they were going to delay those last two episodes until June 10th to be aired as a Monday night movie, which I, for one, can absolutely guarantee happened. But after that announcement, that meant that this episode that we're talking about, plus the next episode, are the last ones that 1991 viewers were going to see for almost a full two months. Um, though, as you're going to see with Blue Rose Task Force Pod's coverage, that's not going to stop the release of the Star Picks trading cards or the two books, uh, My Life, My Tapes, and The Access Guide, all of which will release during the weeks of this uh, second announced hiatus. As far as my personal response, um, I did see these in 1995 um, on Bravo, and I don't remember high schooler me reacting too much to anything in this episode besides, you know, oh, I don't know, that giant lore dump on the lodges. <laughs> you know, I, I remembered all of that almost wholesale after only seeing it twice in 1995. And um, I wasn't, I, you know, I, I certainly wasn't the only one that, that made a huge impression on at the time. Um, I know that uh, Rosie in uh, the Diane podcast, she talked about how as a youngster, she had written that entire monologue of Earl's on her bedroom wall. <laughs> and, 
you know, thematically, you know, teenagers, you know, attaching to that. I, I could, I could kind of see the, um, the resonance there, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it certainly gave a great foundation for anyone who was trying to understand what happened to Cooper at the end and how he could get out. Um, you know, a great amount of world building here in this one. But as far as what David Lynch decided to remember about it, we get this in the, uh, in the Log Lady intro. She says, Pie. Whoever invented the pie. Here was a great person. In Twin Peaks, we specialize in cherry pie and huckleberry pie. We do have many other types of pie. And at the Double R Diner, Norma knows how to make them all better than anyone I have ever known. I hope Norma likes me. I know I like her and respect her. I have spit my pitch gum out of my mouth onto her walls and floors and sometimes onto her booths. Sometimes I get angry and do things I'm not proud of. I do love Norma's pies. I love pie with coffee. So there's a lot of nods to continuity here. You know, cherry is uh, the thing Cooper orders a lot. Briggs uh, has uh, has uh, spoken about the huckleberry pie incredibly favorably. Um, you know, Norma makes her pie with love. And, um, you know, Walter in part 15 gave her the Hollywood studio system condescension about, you know, like, oh, love. You know, it's like, just make it with cheaper ingredients, make more money. Um, so, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, Lynch has never forgotten that Norma makes her pies with love and that's what makes them the best. Um, at the, uh, at the beginning of a commercial break, uh, in, um, in episode eight, the season two premiere, uh, we've got Margaret, uh, spitting pitch gum out of the wall. So she must've been angry in that scene. Um, and, you know, about being angry when you're doing it, you know, you make poor choices when you're under negative emotions. Um, you know, just a thematic thing with Twin Peaks. But um, then we have that pies equate with a positive emotion. And, um, you know, coffee, coffee equates with intuition. And, um, you know, pie equates with a positive emotion. So the best is, um, you know, she loves pie with coffee. She loves the positive plus intuition. Um, and, you know, as far as, you know, wanting to be liked, you know, that's just an empathy situation. And uh, people who are in a generally positive frequency worry about things like empathy. And, um, yeah, you know, again, another kind of uh, a theme a theme coding in Twin Peaks. Um, and I find it interesting to include this when Norma isn't even in the episode, but, um, you know, Lynch remembers his scenes better than anything else. And uh, there were multiple pies each served to Gordon, Shelley, Cooper, and Annie at that table with the front three-quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. And, uh, you know, to Lynch, the the epi this episode is all about the pie and that scene and you know the the bucket list scene that he wanted included in Twin Peaks you know before it got canceled and before it went away yeah so that i i think i think this log lady intro is that is that easy to figure out <laughs> as far as why Lynch thought about it um 
But yeah, I guess now we're going on to the episode. So before that, we're going to hear the words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Red Rum. All things horror, from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out. But hurry. The killer's behind you! All right, welcome back. We are here looking at episode 26 in a uh, more thematic approach, and we're going to start digging into those questions I brought up at the beginning. And the first of which is, how does the solidifying of Lodge lore expand our understanding? So let's start with the petroglyph that's discovered by the lawmen. You know, it's like the guys are back. Um, you know, they're, they're far back. So all we can really see are their light beams again. So they have light cutting through darkness in a literal way. And, you know, the first thing that the episode says is Andy saying nighttime or daytime. Once you get a few feet into this place, you can't tell the difference. And, um, you know, Hawk says probably why it remains so untouched, but I say it's also thematically what happens when you're close to portals, perhaps, or, you know, when you're in the red room or at a junction point, you don't know which way is which because you're, you know, like you're um, kind of in between and they're in between in in the cave. Um, you know, they're 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 basically um, veiled over and, you know, they can't see what's going on because they're in the darkness. You know, I mean, thematic work here. And I'm I'm pretty positive that they included that line for the thematic resonance. Now, of course, we get Cooper noticing the petroglyph right away. And then he says, somebody's been here already. Looks like they did our work for us. And, um, you know, he's studying the petroglyph, and then Hawk is studying Earl's tracks, which were the same that he found outside the power station. So, you know, they're they're able to um they're able to verify that Wyndham Earl also knows about this. And Cooper says, Why he was there is a frightening question to contemplate. But, you know, then they never really contemplate it or plan around what could come from that. Um you know, Andy basically will make an accurate scale re rendering of the petroglyph and uh, Briggs will meet them at the station to discuss it. Um, but, you know, the the scene ends on the petroglyph itself and with the two overlapping uh, lamp beams on it, like um, like superimposing circles um, or, you know, thematically again, since it started off with thematic language. Um, you know, one, one, it's kind of like how, you know, one thing is separating into two because those beams are identical, um, you know, symbolic of things that will happen in, um, you know, Andy's fireman vision for one thing where Cooper separates into two things, uh, you know, Mr. C, the double Cooper and, um, you know, uh, the Cooper that's in the lodge, um, you know, it, it's just symbolic nicely. And um, it's a nice way to cap off the beginning of that, especially as it immediately leads into what we viewers get as further explanation, which is Earl discussing the lodges. So what he says is, um, once upon a time, and, you know, now we see Earl in his cabin puffing on a pipe, um, 
There was a place of goodness called the White Lodge. Gentle fawns gambled there amongst the happy-looking spirits. The sounds of innocence and joy filled the air. And when it rained, it rained sweet nectar that infused one's heart with a desire to live life in truth and beauty. Generally speaking, a ghastly place, reeking of virtue's sour smell, engorged with whispered prayers of kneeling mothers, mewling newborns, fools young and old, compelled to do good without reason. So, um, I think here, like, what he finds so terrible about it is that nobody has a reason to do anything but exist in the light. And, um, I think he's looking for a choice as a human being. Um, you know, something that isn't quite so hive-minded. Um, and, you know, the, um, the choice that everyone in Twin Peaks has, whether to focus on love or on fear, and how that makes a huge difference. Um, you know, it's uh, not, not exactly why Earl thinks that. I think he just likes the other choice, personally. But, um, you know, he, he basically says, ah, but I'm happy to point out that our story does not end in this wretched place of saccharine excess. For there's another place, it's opposite. And, you know, just like I started to say with love and fear being polarities, we also have the lodges being polarities. Um, then he continues, a place of almost unimaginable power, chock full of dark forces and vicious secrets. No prayers dare enter this frightful maw. So vicious secrets are things that are covered over. Like, you know, it's like the mystery is covered over in secrets. And, um, you know, it's like we're, we are supposed to believe the secrets instead. You know, that's a theme in um, Secret History of Twin Peaks. And pretty much any time anybody is trying to cover over one narrative with another narrative. Um, so, you know, why does this appeal to Earl? The unimaginable power. It's just power. Like, he doesn't want to use things like a tool like you would in the White Lodge. He wants to use it like a weapon, which you can use unimaginable power for. Um, so, um, to continue with Earl's monologue, he says, Spirits there care not for good deeds or priestly invocations. They are as likely to rip the flesh uh, from your bones as to greet you with a happy good day. So it's all about want and appetite and, you know, whatever moves them at the moment. And, you know, Bob-style stuff. Um, and then Earl... Um, you know, gets very explicit here and says, and if harnessed, these spirits in the hidden land of unmuffled screams and broken hearts um, offer up a power so vast that its bearer might reorder the earth itself to his liking. So he's going to capitalize on that appetite of his own, too. Um, but, you know, the, the mention of broken hearts, um, that's kind of a love that fails. Um, and, um, you know, that, that's when you go into the dark, um, is when you look away from the, uh, the good stuff when it doesn't work anymore and all that's left is darkness. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the appetite ends up leading into, um, the bearer reordering the earth itself to his liking. Um, that's what Earl wants to do. And 
what Doppelcooper essentially does for 25 years in at least one frequency of reality that we see in season three. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the roadmap for how the, uh, the lodge energy works is basically all contained right here. Um, as far as, you know, how the, um, people searching for the black lodge plot things through and, um, you know, the, the people that live in the negative frequency who use fear and use things as weapons instead of tools, you know, we'll, we'll get thematically how Ben Horn does that with, you know, real life, uh, things. And, uh, we got Earl doing the same thing with the metaphysicals, uh, supernatural stuff in Twin Peaks. Um, but yeah, Earl continues. He says, now this place I speak of is known as the Black Lodge and I intend to find it. So yeah, yeah, he's ready to find it. He wants to use it. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty much that simple. Now, Leo has been watching attentively nearby as we uh, see the camera pan through um, Earl's monologue. And uh, we also see further down from, from Leo, uh, Heavy Metal Youth has been circled by the camera for a while now, too. And uh, finally, when Earl gets to that point, he just says, Hey, man, the story's cool, but you promised me beer. You told me there was going to be a party. And <laughs> Earl says, in time. And uh, then we see his computer screen showing a bluish uh, white background with black lines. And, you know, that that's it's an image of the petroglyph uh, there for Earl to obviously study and, uh, you know, put through whatever kind of processing power his Black Lodge style laptop has. Um, but, you know, he ties. Um, you know, that that image and the petroglyph is now tied together with um, with the monologue. So we are meant to assume that that petroglyph is going to uh, be used in Earl's goal for finding the Black Lodge. And that's pretty much it for Earl. Um, but we have Briggs um, speaking around the petroglyph in Act 2 at the Sheriff's Station conference room. So. Um, yeah, first thing I want to say is that's the room that does not have the bonsai tree in it. So Earl can't actually hear this part of things. So Briggs recalls the petroglyph line in that that Andy is drawing. Um, it should proceed downward, not across. So, um, you know, he has a cup of coffee in his hand. So, you know, his intuition is, um, you know, tops right now. And... Um, it helps him know this map and remember this map. Um, so he knows it. And then he says, but I'm unable to accurately describe for you how or why that he knows. it." Um, he's there because, um, you know, Cooper and the guys asked for his help. And uh, when Cooper gets in there, he describes several disparate investigations. So he, he brings up the disappearance of Leo, the arrival of Earl, and the discovery of the petroglyph. And um, Cooper thinks that they're complementary verses of the same song. Now I cannot hear it yet, but I can feel it. Yeah, Cooper's intuition, you know, maybe, you know he's, he's obviously coffee-fueled uh, daily and hourly, probably. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't need to see the coffee cup in his hand, necessarily. But... Um, the fact that he speaks about it in sound wave terms, you know, it's like, listen to the sounds, uh, is a, is a vibe here again, and you're going to feel it and then hear it and then understand it. 
I think is basically the, uh, the way that like you feel things from lodginess and, um, Basically, what they're wanting from Briggs here in the scene is they want to know all that Briggs can find out about Earl's time working with the Air Force on Project Blue Book. All the stuff that was blacked out from um, from that um, confidential file that Gordon Cole brought the last episode. Um, you know, Briggs's um, connections could possibly uh, fill in all those gaps is what they're hoping. Um, he says his security clearance has been revoked, but he can still get access. And um, the only thing stopping him is a moral concern. And he says, will this information help you prevent further loss of life? And Cooper says, most assuredly. So um, he talks about how about the petroglyph, he dreamed it. He's seen it somewhere, somehow. And then we get the chalkboard slowly zoomed in on. and. Um, it's whited out, but the only part of the board still visible is within the silhouette of the hooded figure that walks through. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to learn that that's the guardian who'd brought Briggs uh, to the White Lodge in, um, in episode 17 at the end. And the, the same hooded figure who would figure again later in the passion play that was mentioned in Access Guide and or... Um, probably the ways um, into the lodge in episode 29. And right here, we see um, the fire symbol on the petroglyph that um, signifies um, the spot that Andy hit with his pickaxe um, in the previous episode. Um, that fire symbol, I mean, you know, at least, you know, geographically on that, um, on that petroglyph, that is around the heart area of the silhouetted guardian so we see that and you know the camera zooms in above that to the head area of the of the guardian as it zooms in the head becomes a star field and then a flying owl flies through and then we see the fire explosion so again it's referencing now um when briggs said that he um when Briggs was explaining in the same exact room to the lawman, um, you know, his experience uh, during his abduction. So, yeah, this is why he knows the petroglyph, because it's related to the Guardian. You know, the, then we see another zoomed in look on the, uh, the fire symbol on the map. And there's a circle with an inverted symbol, you know, the owl cave symbol that's on the owl ring, um, the inverted symbol on it it's in a circle so it 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 also explains that you know that post that earl moved is on the petroglyph itself and you know then there's a a four shape next to it that almost looks like a two going through a one in the shape of a four you know the thing that andy will say you know it's like the 4-h club and uh <laughs> you know so that's prominent too for later um later clues to be capitalized on i assume but, you know, then we see Briggs in the room again after all these um, things that are probably subconsciously being remembered by him, but not necessarily in a uh, conscious way. And he says, I will do what you ask. And, you know, at this point, we get Hawk entering with the arrest report um, of Leo's and, um, you know, Cooper verifies Leo's handwriting right here, referencing uh, 
you know, the mind of Cooper that once noticed the downward slant of Audrey's handwriting denoting a romantic nature. He's just a handwriting guy. You know, from the Briggs lore, we um, we get the plot plot kind of moving in and uh, taking over. So we we step away from the supernatural stuff as far as the plot goes uh, for the rest of the episode. But the imagery hides in the background the whole time. You know, it comes in on transition shots between the scenes like it, you know, like it's always still there just under the surface, even when people aren't talking about it. You know, it's like um, after Bobby plays pinball and before Harry and Catherine speak about Josie, we get the in- inexplicable transition with the um, with the two spotlights shining on the petroglyph again um, and then Earl holding his crossbow. So, you know, it's like that's behind the scenes. And um, after Donna and her parents face off at the sisterless dinner with the peas um, and before um, the the chess piece crate is opened at the gazebo, there's this other transition with a half moon. And then we see the hooded guardian and a flapping owl. Yeah, it's like just like um, just like Lucy in part four with Frank in uh, season three. She's trying to understand how how the uh the thermostat works, you know, the air conditioner unit keeps working even when no one is observing it. You know, it's like we see lodge space themes continuing to work even when characters are focused on separate thoughts that don't concern the supernatural. You know, honestly, even when Wyndham Earl strays off onto other plot lines, a more interesting thing is, you know, the Guardian shows up right when Earl's um, machinations are going to be revealed. Um, we see the, um, we see the hooded guardian and a flapping owl then. So it's almost like the white lodge is still working even while, um, Earl is doing his thing in a black lodge aligned kind of way. So like, you know, the white lodge still exists when the black lodge is there and, um, the lodges still exist when reality is the front and center thing. It all works together all the time. All right, so now that Wyndham Earl is um, trading less in lore and more just in regular, uh, <laughs> you know, bad guy, serial killer kind of behaviors, we'll, we'll go into the next question, which is, what else do we learn about Wyndham Earl's modus operandi? I, I'd say most of it is signified around heavy metal youth and the chess piece. So, yeah, well... Um, well, Earl pontificates to a more vocal new audience than Leo. We see that Leo's been watching attentively nearby, that Heavy Metal Youth is kind of also near in the cabin, and we know that he's been there during the um, during the discussion of the lodges. But um, you know, next time we see Earl, he's in he's in the cabin with his crafting scrubs. You know, like he's been working on something, and it's obviously the paper, uh, the paper mache chess piece. Um, and we see heavy metal youth inside of it, and you know he says he's cool with helping out, but you know thinks it's for parade or something. Um, you know, Earl gives him a sip of beer through a straw, and then you know he gives it to Leo to hold, and um, you know heavy metal youth asks, you know, how do I get out? And he says, you don't. Leo, fetch me an arrow. And um, Leo actually stands still here and shakes a small no, you know, shakes his head no, and then he says no uh, verbally. So Leo um, has decided um, 
that, you know, he's not just in it to kill people. He feels wrong about doing it, which means he does officially have empathy here. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not just self-preservation. And because he doesn't give Earl the arrow, you know, he's zapped and then he's zapped again uh, by the collar. Then he does fetch the arrow after the second louder request of fetch me the arrow. You know, the the uh, the heavy metal youth, he's like sort of on the empathy train, but only in that, you know, don't zap the geek. How am I supposed to get my beer kind of way? So, you know, he's helpful, but he's also all about his appetite which, you know, got him into trouble. And, you know, after after Leo gets zapped, you know, things are back to less violence. So Heavy Metal Youth is back to smiling because, you know, that's just how he is. Um, you know, whatever's right in front of him, uh, that's what he reacts to. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, Earl, Earl does another monologue that says, you know, think of all the helpless sinners wondering where their soul's destinations lie. For what? To gain the answer to a simple question, where will my spirit awake? And, you know, there's that whole dream awake kind of uh, dichotomy that always pops up in a Twin Peaks episode uh, said by Earl. Um, And he continues, what life am I given after this life? This grave question has plagued man's sorry conscience for eons. And now you, you lucky boy, you have the answer now. And as he says now, we see. Heavy Metal Youth finally getting a horrified look on his face. And then we see Leo horrified. And then uh, the arrow goes shooting. And then the next thing we see is Heavy Metal Youth, bloody mouth, you know, a little trail of blood dripping down his face. And uh, then it ends, um, you know, that ends the whole commercial. You know, it goes into commercial from this point, the same way that his face is going to end the other half of the episode as well. So, uh, yeah. Um, you know, we finally see Earl in his process with the scrubs and everything, you know, it's like we see how he gets his job done, um, as far as trolling Cooper in the, um, most lethal ways possible for people who aren't regulars on the show. So, you know, from here we get Earl stop being philosophical and, you know, uh, we see him checking out the gazebo, uh, presumably for, you know, how to move the crate. And, you know, the logistics behind all that into the gazebo. And uh, that's when Earl sees Cooper and Annie on the lake. And, um, you know, he um, he seems pleased to, to see that Dale has someone special in his life. Um, you know, probably for, you know, this is who I'm going to mess with after this whole Miss Twin Peaks thing. And, uh, you know, who knew that he would get two birds with one stone? But yeah, later on, we don't get to see Earl, but we get to see his handiwork with the crate that's actually in there. Um, You know, Cooper says, you know, Harry, there was a time when I could comprehend what a high with a high degree of clarity, Wyndham Earl's twisted logic. But his actions of late have left me completely bewildered. He is changing the pattern of the game board. Um, Kind of like, kind of like how... Earl gave up on the lodge lore and became a normal level killer here. But, um, you know, it's mostly due to the fact that he's cheating by, um, you know, listening in on how Dale is, uh, working on their chess game only to find out that, um, Dale is getting help. So, you know, it's okay if Earl does it. 
not if Dale does it. So, yeah, so, you know, we're still getting repercussions from the whole, you know, Dale's playing off the board thing, and now Earl is. Yeah, the only other time we see Earl's work in this episode, not even him, is uh, still related to the poem. Um, you know, like when um, when Shelley gives the order, I mean, when, when Shelley's at the register saying, you know, what is all this sweet work worth if thou kiss not me? And um, that snaps Cooper to attention and on to, you know, Earl being in town. And he demands, you know, it's like, Shelly, I need I need to see the poem immediately. You know, this is when she tells him that um, Audrey and Donna also got a piece of it and uh, she has it in her purse. And <laughs> he's like, yeah, I need to keep this. And she's like, OK, <laughs> so more great acting from Magic you know, this distracts him so much that he's half in this mode while he's talking to Annie about planning their date, um, which is interesting since, um, you know, Earl pops up there too, bookending things. You know, then in the sheriff's station, we see this poem continue, the storyline. Um, you know, Harry's brought up to speed on who has the poems from Earl. Um, Cooper reads the whole thing, and this is when we learn that it's a poem he once sent to Caroline. Which, you know, doesn't exactly track with the already written timeline in My Life, My Tapes. But, uh, you know, there I guess there is room for this kind of thing not being completely documented in a recording while he was doing it. Um, though, you know, in the book, in the book, Cooper, you know, basically appears to not know that he's in love with Caroline until their final days when they're in the witness protection plan. Um, you know, actually giving protection to Caroline. So that wouldn't have been a good time to send a poem either. So, you know, fast and loose with the continuity. <clears throat> but, you know, we could look at it if you want to, that, you know, Cooper was sending her things um, before he necessarily um, admitted what was going on with how he felt about her. I don't know. Yeah, here, the poem... Um, Cooper says, I hope it's nothing more than a taunt, Harry. Earl takes perverse pride in his ability to insinuate himself into innocent lives. So, you know, think about how Earl has already met up with Donna and Shelley and Audrey in disguises. You know, the, this this plotline is left by, uh, you know, Cooper and Harry will talk to the girls soon. Um, Hawk enters, he's got Donna's poems, uh, fragment and, um, Audrey won't be back till tomorrow. So that's how they're kicking the can down the road, uh, for this plot line today. But that poem thing leads into, um, how Earl is, uh, co-opting Miss Twin Peaks. And that leads us into our next question. How is Miss Twin Peaks more than a beauty pageant? You know, besides being where Earl is going to pluck a sacrifice to enter the lodge and, uh, you know, destroy Cooper with it, um, Miss Twin Peaks in the town, we see it a lot as a civic duty, uh, of a focus of town spirit, um, as a ritual that happens every year, uh, an annual, you know, beginning of summer, and, um, as a thing to win at all costs. <laughs> so in the double R, we have Bobby pressuring Shelley to join Miss Twin Peaks. You know, he looks into the future and what it takes to get ahead in this world is all very surface to Bobby at the moment. You know, it's like beautiful people get what they want. And, you know, his, his big uh, jump is that you never see beautiful people going to the electric chair. You know, basically uh, take advantage of this beautiful people conspiracy and enter Miss Twin Peaks. Um, 
you know, she doesn't want to. And um, on her way out, he grabs her wrist and goes full Leo and says, Shelly, listen, don't argue with me. Bobby's in charge. Do you understand? You're going to enter this afternoon. And, um, you know, Bobby has been on this path to upward mobility ever since, um, you know, ever since Ben Horn was just beginning to go into a Civil War general mode. So, um, you know, he's been hanging around with these high rollers and, um, you know, getting uh, slowly folded in a little more, uh, you know, being able to go to board meetings now. Um, So, you know, he thinks that he has power. And who are his role models for that? Well, I mean, Ben Horn has been sleazy his whole life and using everybody as weapons, basically. Like, every tool in the shed becomes something that he can get one over on people with. Um, even even now, it's still kind of looking that way, even if Ben's trying to reform. And, um, you know, more, more than that, you know, Bobby has hung out with Leo uh, fair, fairly seriously. Um, you know, through his days when, um, you know, he was, uh, getting rewired by Laura, trying to understand himself and be who Laura wanted him to be. Um, I think, you know, being Leo's beta in that situation has imprinted on Bobby. And that's the kind of guy that you are when you have power, um, you have power over people too. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where Bobby's at now. And I know this is going to shift uh, very shortly. So I'm glad for that. But right now he's full Leo as far as outward appearances. You know, it's like we're never going to see him, you know, actually attack people. But, you know, mentally attacking people. Uh, yeah, he's he's doing it without even thinking about it. And uh, luckily, he has enough empathy to do so soon. Um. And, you know, like the, the camera pans away from them. And we also have the mayor and Lana at a window booth talking. And, um, you know, this is the first time we see her in a long time. Um, you know, it seems like we could have had empathy for her at one point because, you know, it's like this whole pheromones thing and, you know, bad luck with like the, the men in her life and all that. I mean, it all seemed kind of like, you know, She's just living with this weird kind of thing around her that happens. But here we see that she has an appetite for things, too. And she wants to win the Miss Twin Peaks contest. And, you know, the mayor says, oh, he'll he'll coach her on speeches and everything's going to be great. You know, she'll she'll be a shoe in. Uh, But, you know, she's talking about how he's one of the judges and he can guarantee it. And um he says, oh, but that would be wrong. And, um, you know, Lana is, you know, pulling Hank kind of logic here. And she redirects it and says, no, it would be love. And, uh, you know, she knows that after all the training she's been putting him through these uh, past couple of days without being on camera, um, that, you know, he would do anything for her. And that's been probably her plan the whole time. Um you know, has, has she been conniving the whole time we've seen her or just, you know, since um, she needed to come up with her new scheme? Um, you know, she's definitely working the angles, though. And um, it's not an inconsistent trait for somebody who's seen around the owl ring a lot, like we see in uh, Secret History and in Final Dossier. So, you know, I still like that retcon to her that it's, you know, fairly consistent that she could be, um, 
lodge adjacent in mission mode anyway. Um, <clears throat> but you know, more than that, we, we see the, um, the civic duty, the, uh, the, um, you know, town spirit kind of aspect to, uh, Miss Twin Peaks later at the roadhouse when we see Shelly, Donna, uh, you know, they're, they're at the table with Bobby and, um, you know, uh, Donna gives uh, Shelly some encouragement that, you know, she would be great in this. And, uh, you know, then Nadine gets there and they're there to sign up the same time as Lana. Yeah. So like it's a it's a big community coming together aspect to Twin Peaks that we actually haven't seen except for like, you know, how that town hall for Laura brought everybody together. So, you know, this is actually the first. the first real Twin Peaksy kind of thing that we get to see in the whole show, I think. And you, of course, we have Ben there too. You know, he's using it to forward his own pet projects and to control the narrative of the town under his leading. So you know, he's using the uh, the community aspect of this event to um, to kind of work from the uh, the elite class of Twin Peaks and how there's always the power struggle up there. You know, he. Uh, he talks to Doc Hayward, the mayor, and Pete, who are the uh, the three organizers of the event, apparently. And, um, you know, they let Ben address them about the theme of Miss Twin Peaks. And, you know, we learn that the mayor is engaged to Lana now because uh, Ben congratulates him on his recent engagement. Then, you know, Ben kind of shifts it. I mean, in in sort of a positive way, but also in a benefits Ben kind of way that, you know, Miss Twin Peaks is now a celebration for the totality of a woman's qualities. Uh, Beauty now includes mind, spirit, values, ideas. And for taking this step, gentlemen, I applaud you. And, you know, the mayor just calls out like, what's he selling? (laughs) What are you selling? So, uh, you know, a theme can achieve you know, showing off the totality of a woman. And uh, Ben proposes, you know, a theme being how to save our forests, which is now relevant, global, and us. <laughs> so, yeah, he's uh, putting on the sauce a little bit, uh, you know, just to sell this thing. Uh, but, you know, we got Pete, you know, being all, you know, like, ha, whatever, uh, because, you know, he connects it to opposition to Catherine's Ghostwood plans. But, you know, then Ben assures him that, you know, environmentalism dwarfs all of their parochial, uh, parochial conflicts. And, um, you know, so we see that um, the machinations of the powerful basically are defining the town through all the community events. Uh, you know, people like Ben, Catherine, Pete, the mayor, um, you know, even Lana using the mayor, um, you know, all via Miss Twin Peaks as the anchor point to sell their particular kind of life that they want to um, blow power through. And as far as Ben trying to control that kind of a narrative, um, you know, how else do we see Ben's uh, work in this episode? Well, uh, his other venture uh, revolves around the wine tasting event. So earlier in the day, we get to see Dick uh, and his new uh, nose bandage after the pine weasel attack uh, approaching Ben. And uh, 
Dick says that his nose is a small price to pay in the surface in the service of the greater good. And, um, you know, Ben assures him he'll pay his medical expenses, uh, which is something we see uh, Ben do a lot in the final dossier, paying for people who can't necessarily, um, you know, financially pay for themselves. You know, he keeps them from, you know, being crushed by debt. Um, so that's an interesting detail. And I have a feeling Mark Frost probably wrote this one in too. Um, but, you know, then we see Dick revealing himself to be kind of like how Ben Horn used to be. Um, you know, he, Dick says, you know, I assume workers' compensation of some variety would be involved. And, you know, then Ben, you know, says, yes, of course. And, um, you know, we get capital, Mr. Horn. I'll alert my attorney. So it's fun to see Ben going up against his old tactics. And, you know, obviously Dick Tremaine isn't, uh, you know, quite as savvy <laughs> as Ben. But, you know, it's it's neat to see, um, you know, that Ben's instinct should be to use tools as weapons. But, you know, you know we, we do see it kind of at the roadhouse. But here when he actually could use some kind of battle tactic against Dick, who is using that battle tactic against him, um, we see that um, he leaves workers' comp as a tool, even when it's used against him. So, you know, growth. We actually see some. Now, as far as the wine tasting event itself, we see Lana in a blue dress, which I believe is referencing a devil with a blue dress. You know, it's like devil with a blue dress, blue dress, blue dress, devil with a blue dress on. It's a 50s or 60s song. I can't remember which decade. I'm sorry. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was a song that was uh, that David Lynch would have definitely grown up with and Mark Frost, too. And, um, you know, I'm the, the writers of the uh, the episode might have been doing that as a reference that, you know, Lana might be a devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, in, in a temptress kind of way which she's trying to do to the mayor. So, uh, yeah, she's getting the, the place ready for it. Um, Dick is hosting it. Um, he has Lana and Lucy pouring everybody's samples. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, some people might think uh, red wine is the only wine. And, you know, we get Andy coming in periodically being helpful like this, where he says, uh, there are also white wines and sparkling wines. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we get... Um, Andy, you know, like, uh, you know, trying to taste early and we get uh, Dick saying, you know, it's like, don't taste it yet, Andy, spit it out. <laughs> so, you know, like, I love their interactions together. As actors, they had to be having the best time. And you can see, like, even today, like, they still, like, th they'll take pictures together and they look like they really are friendly with each other even now. So uh, it's really neat to to see scenes with them. And I don't care about the screwball comedy. Um, but you know, thematically what's going on is Lana gets compliments, Lucy's, you know, like, like she says, you know, it's like, what, what kind of taste is there? And, you know, it's like, Lucy says, you know, Woody and, um, you know, Dick is basically bored on his face and he says, not really, but you know, Lana's banana gets high poetic praise and, um, you know, the question is, is Lana's uh, pheromone power still working on at least Dick because he still has that appetite problem or, um, <clears throat> you know, like what, whatever it is, like Dick and Lana are vibing together, but, you know, Lucy's all, um, 
you know, like, why, you know, like, what is wrong with you? Like, you know, like, why are you so antagonistic against me, who is possibly the mother of your child, essentially? And, um, you know, she goes over to Dick eventually. And, um, you know, Dick asks her, like, how, uh, you know, like, what flavors she got when she, uh, when she tasted the wine all the way. And uh, she ends up spitting it at him like a, like, like a, like a water spigot almost. And, um, you know, like once she's finally done doing that, she says, I'm pregnant. I'm not supposed to drink. So, you know, she's taking care of herself while he can't. And, you know, he's just being a cad with some other woman. Uh, so that's the end of that. And um, we're pretty much on to another question, which is what are the ramifications of secrets? We see secrets coming up still in... Um, you know, Catherine's puzzle box and also Josie's memory being tied together with the puzzle box scenes this time around. Um, you know, we see Pete and Harry uh, both being asked for help with Catherine's puzzle box by her. Um, but, you know, it's like when, um, well, well, first of all, the puzzle box is a secret that has yet to be solved. So she's trying to get into secrets and her curiosity is getting the best of her. But, you know, she only asks them for assistance with it after they, um, after they start talking about Josie, you know, it's like we got, um, we got Pete who, um, in his only nod to helping with chess, you know, it's like, he's sort of absentmindedly playing with the chessboard. You know, even he's kind of done with the chess unknowingly, but you know, he's moving the pieces around when Pete is talking about Josie and, uh, you know, it's like, if, if I think that I shall never see a girl as lovely as Josie, when she walks into a room, the flowers all stood up to room, doom, doom gloom. And <laughs> he, uh, he basically repeats it, um, you know, so that, you know, the flowers were all a bloom and, oh, Josie. And, you know, like we, we can see that he actually feels loss about Josie even though he's not turning in anyone uh, related to that under suspicious foul play kind of ways, you know, it's like, uh, you know, like he, he's not giving any helpful information to get Catherine and Andrew in trouble, especially uh, not revealing Andrew's being alive. There's that. And uh, Catherine comes in, demands that he stops moping and help her with this damn box. You know, she goes into, she knows that Eckerd left her, left it to her, but yet, you know, she's been trying to open it for days and wants it open now. So want, uh, impatience above common sense that maybe it could be a trap. Maybe it's not a trophy. Um, and you know, we get, <laughs> we get Pete going through all the, um, you know, his, his little flow chart of how things work. You know, it's like, do you have a key? And it's like, uh, it doesn't even have a keyhole. You know, it's like, it's a box. It must have, it must have a way to open. It's probably a keyhole. It's okay. It's not that. Uh, then he's like, oh, it's a puzzle box. And, you know, then he goes off on a story about how he first came across puzzle boxes with the Doolittle twins. And, you know, of course, this team's Catherine because she just wants now. And that's all she has with this puzzle box is now. And, you know, later on, she's actually talking to Harry about Josie. And, um, you know, Harry probably came to her to ask questions to, to, you know, reach closure for himself. So, you know, she actually kind of has empathy to Harry at this point. And, um, you know, we get again, Michael Ankeen and, uh, Piper Laurie acting together in a really solid way. Like, I, I think, um, 
I think Catherine brings out the best in Harry's acting. Um, but, you know, Harry says, uh, what made her do the things she did? What was she after? And, um, you know, Catherine does a lot of, like, possibly, um, oh, what, what do you call that when, like, you uh, place things, um, place your own ideas and issues on other people? I can't even remember the term right now, but, like, she's sort of possibly doing that in relation to Josie, or maybe she just sees a kindred spirit. But um, she goes on and says, uh, well, I think early in her life, she must have learned the lesson that she could survive by being what other people wanted to see by showing them that. And whatever was left of her private self, she may never have shown to anyone. So it's really astute here. And, you know, it makes sense that it would come that that sort of logic would come from the mistress of disguise who could become Mr. Tojimura. Uh, but you know, so, uh, so Harry says, so all these stories, the lies were, and, uh, you know, she goes on and says, well, who knows? They, they may not have seemed untrue to her. You know, what, what she needed to believe was shifting to suit the moment. Um, in spite of all the things she tried to do to me and my family, I find it curiously hard to hate her for it. So, um, you know, again, this is kind of what she can do to get out of jam. So therefore she can empathize with Josie. And especially now that Josie isn't uh, part of competition or um, plans to get to Catherine and, you know, best Catherine. Uh, now she can kind of uh, look at Josie for why she might have been doing what she was doing rather than being, you know, a weapon against her. But, you know, of course, you know, Harry thinks, you know, it's like, well, yeah, of course you forgive her because, well, she was so very beautiful. <laughs> so, like, is Harry being tone deaf or just a little bit too surface? You know, it's tough to know. But, um, you know, Catherine sizes up Harry here and basically says, you know, there may be a clue that benefits the both of us. And, you know, this is when she brings out the puzzle box. So, you know, maybe it would possibly explain some of Josie's motives and or her past. Uh, with the uh, things connected to her her former boss and lover. You know, it's like, who knows? Um, but Pete enters all jazzed up over the Miss Twin Peaks entrance. And, um, you know, he, he takes the box again and, you know, drops it. And we get Piper Laurie's best line reading possibly of the show with Butterfingers. And, <laughs> but, you know, the box is open. You know, it's like whatever kind of... Um, magnet or whatever you know spring you know like whatever got shook loose with the way that it fell um the box is now open and then there's a smaller dark box with moon phase circles of images uh and symbols around the outside of that circle of moon symbols and uh they're like okay you know we have we have reached a new level with this but that's all we get to see this episode we'll see more of it next time the other secret that we see is with donna's parentage so after the roadhouse, you know, after after Ben's pitch uh, about Miss Twin Peaks' theme to the committee, um, Ben leaves, you know, he said, you know, talks to Bobby about the dry cleaning, you know, and say, don't forget that, will you? And uh, he walks out, but he gives Donna kind of a look, like he wants to say something to her almost, but he's respecting Eileen's wishes to not get involved with Donna. That's probably it. But Donna stares down Ben as he leaves. And um, then we get the dinner 
at, at the Hayward's house between Eileen, Will, and Donna. So, um, you know, first of all, the lack of sisters, right? Uh, production situation, you know, availability of the actors, you know, Harriet and Gersten were not available to be on set that day, probably, or they just didn't have the budget to bring them in, um, which is, you know, probably you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Um, but from, um, you know, Donna's POV, we could say that, you know, this is a negative con- uh, confrontation between her and her parents. So emotionally, the only people who exist in that battle are the ones at the table. So, you know, if this were season three, I'd say we were on a negative frequency. And, um, you know, emotionally, um, her sisters are not allowed to be at the table for this confrontation. And, um, you know, it, it, it works in that way. And, um, you know, we have Eileen asking for peas. So, you know, we have the looping behaviors also kind of on display here, whether that was, um, you know, on point or on purpose or not. But, um, you know, it also kind of connotes a negative frequency because um, at the beginning of the conversation, it starts with the peas. And then, um, you know, no one notices during the argument that um, Eileen had already asked for peas. And, you know, even Will's like, you know, give your mother the peas. Um, so, you know, like the, the second time the peas come up, um, you know, it could just be Eileen being defensive and asking for the next thing that she sees in front of her. Um, or it could just be, you know, a weird looping sort of behavior too. So, um, it's, it's a lot more season three here with its surrealness than I believe it was expecting to be. And like, I, I think it was just, uh, you know, they had one they had one food prop on there and we weren't supposed to be paying enough attention to, uh, which food get to, gets asked for, you know, what the actual argument consists of is, you know, Donna's asking how Eileen knows Benjamin Horn and, uh, doc jumps in to say what he told Donna earlier, which is, um, you know, about heal the planet. And, uh, Eileen just says, heal the planet. Like, you know, she's not on board. She's not quite, knowing that you know she's supposed to be trying to cover up a lie here yet and um you know donna says that she saw ben here yesterday it must have been the charity who sent the roses so you know um donna is like spitting that venom with her eyes again and it's uh you know it's it's a really good scene that she brings to the table you know whether the uh the gravity of all this um melodrama you know holds it or not you know that's different but uh she does a good job with it and uh so do uh you know so does mary joe deschanel and uh warren frost um but you know donna's like you know i think roses are really romantic don't you and uh, she and her mother stare each other down and um you know the parents try to redirect it you know they shifted over to school you know it's like how is school and uh you know, uh, Donna basically says that, you know, she uh, she signed up for Miss Twin Peaks because she can use the scholarship money to study overseas. <laughs> so, you know, I bet now, now that she's getting all of these uh, secrets um, from her home life, that I bet now she would go with James uh, doing whatever he needs to do, because now she seems to kind of get it, you know, leaving leaving the lies that she's living under seems to be a good way to heal and to get back at the people that she's mad at. But, you know, 
it also cordons yourself off, which is, you know, a great way to maintain negative feelings. And, uh, you know, the sisters are already missing. Uh, now she kind of wants her parents gone too. So, uh, you know, that, that's just subtext, um, with, um, continuity errors essentially, but it fits well with the state of Donna's mind as well. <clears throat> so secrets kind of grow the darkness or, you know, like, um, allow the darkness to thrive in, in its, uh, little circles. But, um, you know, the, we, we got the last question in the episode, you know, what are the possibilities that grow from love? We have what it can open up, um, in Shelley and even Bobby eventually and Gordon Cole. Um, we, we get that one scene, uh, where they're at the diner. It's the, uh, the goodbye to Gordon at the double R. <laughs> um, you know, he, he's telling a very Lynch style, uh, story to Shelley about, you know, basically shooting a bad guy. Um, and, um, there's an interesting wardrobe choice with Shelley here, you know, that, that, that's sort of like strangely see-through top that's, that must've been like of that year's fashion and only that year's fashion. Um, it stuck out like she wore that for the party scene, uh, with, uh, with, you know, Leo and the kazoo and the hat on his head where he falls in the cake and everything. So this must be her special occasions top. And that's a fun bit of continuity. Um, <clears throat> but, um, Cooper and Annie arrive, um, you know, to join them for pie. And uh, Gordon basically says to Shelly, Shelly, you are a miracle worker and a goddess sent from heaven. And Shelly just says, I'm a waitress in a diner and I've never been compared to a goddess before. So <laughs> she doesn't know how to take compliments. It's uh, pretty endearing. Uh, but um, Gordon just says, well, Shelly, you just don't know your own value. And then after some more words, he basically uh, shifts over and says, you know, turn around and face me before I lose my nerve. I'm about ready to leave Twin Peaks and I don't know when I'm going to return, but I want you to know that meeting you has been more than a privilege. It's touched my heart. And I know if I don't kiss you now and you know, her eyes, you know, completely, you, you can hear the, uh, the record scratch in her head, even though we don't get to hear it out loud. And, uh, he he basically continues and says, I'm going to regret it the rest of my days. So they they kiss chastely here, uh, just this one, and we get a real record scratch, plus Bobby shouting, hey! And then he's like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, this is when we get that extremely classic line. You are witnessing a front three-quarter view of two adults sharing a tender moment. And, you know, then to Shelly, he just says, acts like he's never seen a kiss before. And, um... Then back to Bobby, he says, take a look, take another look, Sonny. It's going to happen again. And it does to Bobby's complete befuddlement. But um, this moment of shock is the wake up call that Bobby needed to see that Shelly is worth working for, you know, rather than trying to control her. So um, Shelly may not have believed in it personally. But, you know, she went with the value that Gordon Cole placed on her for these kisses. And, um, you know, whether it's for beauty, whether it's for the ability to allow Gordon to hear or, you know, the whole package deal that is Shelly. I mean, you know, it's like whatever it is, um, she's enjoying um, that someone sees value in her. And she eventually, you know, by, by this time next episode, she's rewarded with Bobby also seeing the value in her that way and um love 
resumes growing from this, which is nice. Now, how else is love growing things? Well, I mean, we've got Mike and Nadine actually being on the same page. And, um, you know, okay, so they're at the roadhouse. Nadine goes there to sign up for uh, Miss Twin Peaks, and Bobby takes Mike off to the side. And, um, you know, Bobby's like, yeah, I haven't seen you too long. And, uh, you know, Mike just says, it's not what you think. And, you know, like, uh, you, you think I'm going out with an older woman. And Bobby just answers with, I think I don't know where you got this sudden interest in the life of fossils. Clear this up for me. And Mike just says, do you have any idea what a combination of sexual maturity and superhuman strength can result in? And um, he he like leans in almost like, you know, in, in that way that, you know, whispers are supposed to be silent, you know, like between Laura and Dale in the Red Room, say. Um, you know, he whispers something to Bobby and, um, you know, he spins around and says, whoa, and everyone turns and he apologizes and, uh, you know, he needs to play it off with pinball. So like, you know, on the, on the surface, it's really fun, you know, especially with everyone turning in unison to look, but, you know, it's highly realistic because, you know, it, it essentially just falls under the, uh, the surreal rules of, uh, you know, physical representation of uh, what's going on internally. You know, it's like we uh, just like uh, just like we saw at, with, you know, Donna's dinner table. Um, you know, it just doesn't add up to make sense because, you know, I mean, first of all, the whisper is barely there. You know, it's like it was only a couple of seconds. So how many words could you cram in there? And uh, Bobby's extreme reaction. I mean, like I like I brought up earlier, you know, it's like, uh, he, he was dating Laura Palmer and, um, you know, she, she messed with his head and she definitely had like all sorts of, uh, sexual proclivities that we got to witness in the diary. So, you know, it's like for something to be said in like three seconds or less by Mike Nelson about Nadine Hurley that shocks Bobby that much, it's like. Okay, I mean, it must have been good, but, you know, I think it was just there for the joke. And, uh, you know, it's not really going to be able to do it um, in that extreme of a way. But, you know, uh, Ashbrook really, really sold that moment. You know, it was it was just it was a really fun scene. Um, If you're not thinking too deep about, you know, lore and stuff, you know, because, you know, you weren't supposed to back then. Um, But. you know, it being that kind of a surreal scene, though, you could look at it more with like, you know, Nadine, Nadine does this really interesting move where she kind of like tilts her head a little bit, you know, like she's just reacting to, you know, it's like Mike must have, uh, you know, Mike must have said something really fun about me or something. It's like, you know, he's into me, you know, so like she gives him probably a wink because, um, yeah, per per Mikey from Cooper Duper. Um, when I was, when I was on with him, um, for this episode, um, he made this really neat observation that, um, you know, that head tilt is almost like Nadine was winking with her left eye, which is covered by the eye patch. Um, which would mean for sure that Nadine is back to not being able to see what her eye is like in the present. Um, unlike how she recognized that, you know, she might not be able to see, uh, when Jacoby mentioned the word divorce a few episodes ago. Um, so, you know, even though she's growing and healing inside this cocoon, she's still needing to do it 
inside of a delusion where she can't really tell if her eye's gone or not. Um, but you know, from a, from a healing point of view though, um, Mike and Nadine are in lockstep with each other. And, you know, I mean, it takes just a few syllables of explanation, um, for those around them to understand how they're feeling. So, you know, love is helping them even, even if there's delusion afoot. Another variation on how we see love affecting characters in this episode is how we see John Justice Wheeler and Cooper grapple with letting love in in the first place, um, you know, at their scene in the Great Northern Fireplace. So from a writerly perspective, I mean, this is the only scene that we ever get between Cooper and Wheeler. So, I mean, this is kind of them approving of each other as men, which means that, um, you know, uh, Wheeler should be worthy as a bow for Audrey and, um, you know, Cooper should be able to freely approach Annie. You know, that that's just, you know, nuts and bolts. This is like some kind of, you know, the, the, the last check mark that we need to be okay with this whole, um, they're dating other people thing as viewers. Um, but the scene itself begins with the, uh, that, that saxophone song called Josie and Truman. Um, you know, Cooper's drinking milk alone by the fire. I think it's milk. Um, and, um, Wheeler comes up and he wants someone to commiserate with, you know, like he, he basically says love is hell, <laughs> which is, you know, an odd way to begin speaking to somebody, but whatever. And there's also this weird hum at the fireplace. So I don't know if they were just picking up the, uh, the sound of a, you know, the sound of a gas fireplace or, um, you know, w- was it actually something a little more, um, you know, e- e- either way, the way fireplaces work in this town, you know, it's like it, there's almost a twinge of uh, supernatural observance. You know, I, I'm writing that off as just like a, a weird thing with the sound design at that point um, between the guys. Um, you know, something getting picked up by it um, in, in the mic, I mean. Uh, but, you know, we get back and forth um, dialogue. You know, it's like, OK, Wheeler says love is hell. Cooper says the Hindus say love is a ladder to heaven. And Wheeler responds with, the Hindus have also been known to take hikes on hot coals for recreational purposes. So, you know, they have different approaches. You know, Wheeler is very worldly and Cooper is from the, uh, you know, the um, the spiritual side of it, I guess. Um, and, you know, Cooper says it's self-discipline. And Wheeler says self-discipline and love. There's a bad match. And, uh, you know, Cooper just says earthly love. And... Um, Wheeler says, what other kind is there? And, you know, it's like we're, we're still seeing them on, you know, their polarities. But, you know, Cooper says, when you're in it, no other. And, um, you know, so he's meeting Wheeler in the middle here. Um, and and um, Wheeler says, it hits you like an 18-wheeler, doesn't it? There's no relief. And Cooper responds with, it makes you feel more alive. And Wheeler says, makes you feel more of everything, pain included. And Cooper says, especially pain. So they're sort of on the same page still. But uh, Wheeler says, I can't stop thinking of her. Um, And Cooper says, sounds like you got a pretty serious case. And Wheeler says, brother, I'm rope tied and branded. 
So again, we've got cowboy terminology coming through uh, to uh, feed into the romantic archetype that Wheeler's supposed to be. And, um, you know, Cooper just asks outright, you know, it's like, does she feel the same way? And uh, Wheeler says, here's hoping. How about you? You on the critical list too? You know, this is where Cooper kind of, uh, you know, has um, solidarity with Wheeler, but also um, a different perspective. You know, he, he says, you know, feels like someone's taking a crowbar to my heart. And, um, you know, Wheeler says, sounds bad. And Cooper says, no, I think it's been locked away long enough. This is the moral to their story here in this scene, you know, overcome the fear, overcome the pain because you're hoping for something better past it. And um, Wheeler says, that's good. And, you know, Cooper says, here's hoping. You know, so reversing the uh, the phrasing of Wheeler here. And, you know, Wheeler says, here's to you. And then, like, they're shown from behind. They're clinking glasses at the fireplace. And I feel like this is the official handing off the torch. You know, the, the new guy allows Cooper to proceed with Annie. And the old guy approves John Justice Wheeler's pursuits. Even if Cooper doesn't know that it's with Audrey, he knows that this guy is somehow worthy, even though, you know, he's only similar in that, you know, they're both feeling crazy about ladies in their lives that are new to them. You know, personally, I think it's a neat character scene between them, especially considering it was made in 1991. And, you know, it's got, you know, it, it comes from a culture where patriarchy is just kind of a thing. And, um, you you just kind of accept it and from that point of view like these are two good guys getting ready to uh <laughs> you know find find out how to grow their their love with their new um with their new romantic interest in a show so you know it, it felt pretty good for a viewer but you know anyway it's um it it still kind of works in the context of twin peaks too as i've explained but um you know, it's nice to see that, you know, Wheeler is just about ready to, um, you know, maybe change his perspective and keep trying with Audrey, uh, regardless of his uh, kind of freak out that's happening right here. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, at this point, you know, it's like they seem to be in a good place with each other, too. I mean, the two the two guys. But a man comes over with a telegram message for Wheeler and... Um, you know, Wheeler says he tells the bellman that he'll be checking out. Uh, he gets up and he shakes Cooper's hand, and uh, they both offer luck to each other. And uh, Cooper just remains there as before. So you know, we get we get the impetus for uh, Wheeler's long extended leaving of next episode. But yeah, we finally kind of give with that scene. We kind of get a perspective of Cooper actually you know, deciding to, or, you know, maybe this finishes off his job of understanding that, yeah, he is going to pursue with Annie and we get to see it out loud, even though he's been very explicitly interested this whole time, um, just maybe more in a, um, a heady way, like rather than a, a heart way. And like, we get to hear here that, you know, Cooper is really feeling it with Annie. Um, but yeah, so Annie and Cooper, you know, we're, we're at the last section here. So, um, you know, at the, at the beginning of the episode, we first see Annie walk past while others are scheming about Miss Twin Peaks at the double R 
And um, then Cooper enters w- in his FBI jacket after they've just uh, discovered the petroglyph. And uh, he says, good morning, Annie. And he or- he's ordering for four hungry lawmen out in the police cruiser. We need donuts and coffee. Hot. Two black, two white, no sugars, please. Then he asks in, he, he asks in a really formal way, if she'd like to accompany him on a nature study this afternoon. And she accepts, and it's all pleasant and 50s TV wholesomeness. And, um, you know, these two are really cute together, uh, in my opinion. And I I hear Dale saying, you know, like, how wonderful. When I talk to you, I get a tingling sensation in my toes and in my stomach. I don't think it has anything to do with coffee. So in this way... You know, he's just telling Annie whatever's on his mind at this point, which happens to be about her. And uh, it kind of echoes how Lynch was, with, or how uh, how Gordon Cole was uh, with uh, with Shelley the last episode. Uh, you know, just like explaining <laughs> explaining your heart to the people that uh, move it. And um, you know, it's it's pretty much proof again that being on a love frequency allows you to to dream but not necessarily be present to other waves of current energies um, because, you know, soon we'll see him shift when Shelley talks to him about, um, you know, the uh, the poem that Earl gave her a fragment of. And, you know, he goes off into that frequency and, um, you know, he's back to investigator mode where he can recognize the darkness. But then Annie brings by... Uh, you know, Cooper, who's now distracted his order, and he just says, you know, thanks, and he tries to leave. You know, he's almost disconnected from Annie here. But, you know, Annie brings him back and says, Agent Cooper, this afternoon? And uh, Cooper comes back enough to say, uh, yeah, I mean, he's more subdued here, but he says, yeah, I'll meet you right here, four o'clock sharp. And he backs out of the door, not breaking eye contact with her. You know, he is back, even though he's had an interruption of the, uh, the fearful kind with the poem. But, you know, it's it's very cute for Annie because, you know, it's like she knows that she just got a date with Cooper and Shelly knows that Annie just got a date with Cooper and neither one of them are saying anything. They just, you know, eye each other up, understand what happened, but, you know, no words. They smile and they wordlessly spin and walk symmetrically down their sides of the uh, behind the counter area. And I love their friendship, you know, between um, <clears throat> between Shelly having encouragement from Donna and her growing interactions with Annie. I I really think that the writers are having a concerted effort to give Shelly friends now that she's out from under Leo's thumb. You know, that friendship also helps us see Annie having a friend as well, especially since Peggy Lipton's been missing from the show after Annie's initial arrival. You know, I mean, uh, uh, aside from. The episode where Annie arrived, episode 24, we don't see her and Norma again together until episode 28 when they're getting ready for Miss Twin Peaks, basically. So, like, this um, this deepest connection she has in town um, is just missing. So Shelly's also filling the void there. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I know... Um, I know here they're also trying to give a, a reason why Annie's not super connected to Norma, too. You know, during their scene in the rowboat, um, Annie and Cooper, I mean, um, Annie says, I always felt closer to nature than I did people. And Cooper asks why. And, um, you know, Annie says, 
I never had many friends. Norma was always Miss Popularity. She was always moving toward the world, and I was always moving away from it. I lived in my own head, mostly. And, uh, you know, Cooper says, that's not bad. That's not a bad neighborhood. And Annie says, there were some pretty strange neighbors. So <laughs> all the all this time without those kind of familial scenes helps us not really attach Annie to the town. and um, you know, leaves room for the mayor to say that, you know, she's only been here for five minutes, even before she gets abducted after Miss Twin Peaks. Um, you know, Milford would have been the mayor when she was growing up there and would have, you know, known that she was Norma's sister, too. So, you know, it's it's interesting how, like, just how much of an afterthought her connections to town is, you know, according to the writers, I mean. Um, but, you know, Cooper asks her about past boyfriends, and she says, no, well, I had one senior year. And um, he asks, you know, have anything to do with why you went into the convent? And she says, I'm sorry, do you mind if we don't talk about it? You know, she, she shifts into saying later that, you know, like, I want to come back to the world. I was so frightened for so long. Hiding from your fear doesn't make it go away. And then Cooper says, makes it stronger. And Annie says, so I had to face it. I had to face myself. So, you know, okay, it's a thematic connection to love and fear, you know, uh, push through fear in order to get to, um, you know, in order to get through the fear. Um, and, you know, there's the thematic connection with, um, I mean, essentially, that's what a lodge trial is, too. And, you know, doppelgangers, uh, um, you know, Cooper's double, you know, it's like you you confront yourself. You know, I, I had to face it. I had to face myself. And um, and then when she says, uh, and I had to do it here where everything went so wrong, that reminds me of how returning is a big theme. You know, Cooper returns to Twin Peaks. Jacoby returns to Twin Peaks and uh, finally, you know, actualizes as Dr. Amp. You know, Cooper returns. You know, that's how his doppelganger finally goes away. Um you know, even James has to return a couple different times, which is thematically relevant in the final dossier. So, um, you know, she she really, Annie really belongs in the show Twin Peaks based on how it works with, you know, confronting your trauma. You know, even if she doesn't technically belong in the town so well, she belongs in the show very clearly and very easily. But, you know, Cooper takes both of her hands at this point, touches her wrist scars, and he says, Annie, I know how hopeless things can seem. I know about the dark tunnel you can fall into. Annie says, you know, happened before I went away. Happened because of that boy. So, you know, you figure she's 18 or 19 when that's happening. You know, Cooper says something similar happened to me and made me want to disappear from the world. Because of that, maybe I can help you. And, um... You know, then they kiss and uh, she says, I don't know you very well. And he says, no. And um, Annie just says, I'm trying to learn to trust my instincts. So intuition like Cooper's or prognostication vibes like Sarah's, you know, either way, she's trying to trust that intuitive side that um, is the uh, the positive side of, um, you know, the, the lodge spaciness of the town. But, you know, Cooper asks her, you know, it's like, what are her instincts saying? And Annie says, trust. And there's more kissing. You know, we see them 
beginning something in a romantic way too, not just um not just in an intellectual way, but like I feel like both of them need to have that intellectual um uh, safety before they can let their bodies do what they want. But, you know, there there's um yeah, there, there there's a lot of things with Annie and Cooper's relationships that I find interesting. Okay, so why would Cooper want to start a relationship with Annie? You know, I can see why he'd want to. You know, the the tingling sensation in his toes and stomach that he mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, the cuteness from last episode with the penguin joke. And, and, you know, part of it can be his growth. You know, Cooper's heart, having been locked away long enough, you know, he's giving himself permission to try at love again, despite, you know, locking it down and being fearful about it. You know, it's like he he's worried about it going the same way that it went with Caroline. You know, they he and Annie have a similar past history and a connected, you know, like a, a common understanding of trauma. You know, they're they're actually kind of a good match for, you know, they, they both need to grow at a certain rate and they are kind of able to grow together. Though, you know, I can also see um Mikey from Cooper Duper. Um I, I can see his point as well. Uh, when I was on there for uh, for their episode on this episode, I guessed it. I mean, but yeah, Mikey Mikey said that he could believe that Annie could be falling for Cooper, but that Cooper would only be falling in love or, or falling for the idea of protecting her, which you know also tracks with how Frost um, said that Annie would allow Cooper the chance to right the wrongs of his past in relation to how it all went down with Caroline. And, um, you know, honestly, I could go either way with this issue and I will be tracking that argument because, you know, it's, it's, it's worth trying to, you know, figure out where on the balance beam these two are as a couple, you know, personally, I do think that they're a good match and that they do have the ability to grow solid things together. But, the reason why this argument exists in the first place is because it's all a perception issue. You know, what I said about Annie not being really connected to the town, even though she should be, it's also based on how Cooper was with Audrey all these episodes. You know, I mean, it's really incongruous. You know, first off, so comparisons aren't, um, they're not synonymous with wanting the Audrey relationship. You know, it's like, I know, I know we're not supposed to need to think about it anymore since, you know, the Cooper and JJ, you know, the JJW scene, um, was kind of their patriarchal handoff, but you know, we can't help it as viewers because, um, you know, it's like we saw Audrey and Cooper vibing, um, for a whole bunch of episodes before the writers decided it was time to, uh, get them going as a romantic couple. Uh, you know, and I know it got kiboshed, but I know where it was supposed to start happening was episode 17. And I do understand that, um, you know, there are differences why Cooper would be reacting differently. I mean, you know, Audrey was a high schooler and connected to his case. And when Annie got there, she was at minimum 23 years old, you know, likely no older than 25, but um, not younger than 23. And um, she wasn't connected to any case until she met Cooper. So, you know, they are going to be reacted to differently by Cooper. I get that. But, um, you know, the speed of the relationship doesn't end up matching with their characterizations. You know, we've got, um, you know, okay, production point of view, 
you know, she didn't have the 16 episodes to simmer like, uh, you know, Sherilyn Fenn was on the show the whole time so that she and uh, she and Cooper could flirt together um, that whole time and kind of grow like, uh, oh, will they, won't they? Uh, but, you know, Heather Graham, she was only on the show for six episodes. And um, for plot purposes, she needed to be a damsel in distress by the end of the fifth. So, um, yeah, they they didn't have the same amount of time that Audrey and Cooper had together. Um, and we also get that, you know, Audrey's a sex bomb, basically. And Annie and Cooper are also, you know, they're all cerebral. And it's hard to see the attraction when people are just being cere- cerebral with each other. And uh, having less time to grow organically where viewers can see it. Um, you know, it just seems like the energy is completely inverted because, you know, Cooper has been, uh, you know, pushing off this flirting girl where they obviously have, you know, some kind of physical chemistry. Whereas, um, you know, Annie and Cooper, you would think that they would need to be cerebrally um, connected before they would um, be able to be physically connected. And I understand that, you know, People are different with that kind of stuff. And, you know, it actually is physically connecting um, because of the way their brains work. You know, it's like whether it's like something neuroatypical or what. And I know it's there, but from a viewer point of view, it's hard to see it. And especially in 1991, you know, like the way that I put it in 2015 when I was writing in the Sparkwood in 21 uh, for their feedback section, the, the podcast with them and Steve, I said, I can see why Cooper would enjoy her oddball pure as fresh fallen snow thing, but not how he'd fall for her so completely and quickly that six episodes later he'd get possessed by Bob for her. She was basically a shell in those final two episodes, so I was extremely curious about her character in the four years between 1991 and then seeing Annie's introductory episodes in 1995 for the first time. I had built her up in uh, something almost mythic, that Cooper must have lost his mind over. Instead, I find out that Annie's one of two things, a perfect long-simmering relationship that should have advanced slowly over the course of at least an entire season before blooming properly, like, say, Audrey would have been by then, or she's a good match who tragically turns into what essentially is a rebound girl when the Audrey chemistry got flushed. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that's kind of the push-pull between how Frost needed her to be something, and then Harley Payton was kind of, um, you know, against the stopping of the Audrey Cooper relationship. You know, maybe that came out in the writing a little bit with um, how Annie was portrayed. But, you know, however it was, you know, it's it's kind of tricky because, I mean, it's really unfair about the comparison between, you know, how many episodes Audrey and Cooper had versus how many that Annie and Cooper have. It's, um, you know, it's an unfair comparison, but it's real, you know, in terms of, um, where Annie is compared to where Audrey was at the time, like, um, you know, this would have been two episodes before, uh, when Audrey shows up in his bed at the end of the episode, which he'll rebuff, but, um, viewers wanted to see that happen because in the fifth episode of knowing each other, um, you know, Cooper you know, we didn't know if Cooper would give in and, uh, we were allowed to watch their chemistry without knowing whether it would turn into something. And we, as viewers had time to decide 
to want the relationship with Audrey and Cooper before they decided to breach the subject for themselves. Whereas with Annie and Cooper, we got the uh, the chickadee on the Dodge Dart and the penguin joke last episode. But only half an hour later, Cooper was already basically offering to help Annie with what sounds like a Jane Austen-level contractual dating approval process stuff. Um, you know, it's like we, we didn't get any time to decide if we liked them together like that. You know, we're just left with, oh, I guess Cooper wants this. Let's see if he's right. So, you know, it's like it didn't really have that viewership growth that it kind of needed to, to you know, make too many shippers for them because it's already shipped before we needed to decide. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that that's all, like, extra textual, but, like, even the music here kind of wants wants you to compare them. And, you know, this is another tough comparison. Um, because, you know, it's like there's scenes of growing together, especially the one in the boat this episode where they begin to kiss. Um, it's being scored by a variation on Audrey's Prayer, the uh, the the sound cue. And, um, okay, so seasons one and early seasons two romance scenes were often scored by the love theme from Twin Peaks, which is basically a flute version of the Laura Palmer theme with different instruments. Um, so I think. I think basically the show stopped using the the love theme just as much as they stopped using the Laura Palmer theme in favor of like, you know, things like Earl's uh, flute clue and Audrey's prayer. You know, did it stop being used once Leland died? Um, you know, was it even earlier than that when those themes went away, basically? I'm uh, I'm pretty confident that, you know, since Sarah Palmer was ejected from the show, so was the love theme and you know the laura theme and you know that's strange and unfortunate to me you know i i i would love to know if that was like some kind of show edict for directors you know kind of like lynch's near complete kibosh on the color blue you know it's like were they also not really allowed to use laura music from that point forward um so you know they had to change the love theme yeah, so it, it's it's interesting because like now all the a plot romance scenes are either scored to the Twin Peaks theme itself, which seems to be coded for some kind of earnestness, or it's a variation on Audrey's prayer, which means that it's not rooted in Laura's tone anymore. It's rooted in Audrey's tone. You know, I I think that subconsciously helped make Annie feel like a rushed also ran. You know, I mean, I, being completely fair, she was written as that, basically. You know, it's like she just needed to be the impetus for Cooper to go into the lodge, which is kind of a fridging. Um, but, you know, they, they, they still ended up making a good argument for her anyway, you know, however rushed the whole thing was. And, you know, looking at her like a human being, I really do think she's a great match for Cooper. But, you know, again, all of this just helps add to the suspicions around her. You know, the outsider who grew up in town yet is never recognized by anyone. You know, the uh, you know, she she came into Twin Peaks after Cooper had already been the guy who, like, slightly fell under Lana's pheromone powers in those couple of episodes, you know, which means he's subjective. I mean, he, he's he's able to be subjected to the woodsy magic around town and you know him falling for a stranger just a bit too fast you know is it off-putting or is it like magical what's happening 
Um, and you know, I mean, that just ends up leading into the theories to the fact that she's either like Tulpa adjacent or somehow lodge maneuvered. And, you know, of course, since all this eventually ties into the lodges plot and miss twin peaks as next episode, Annie will choose to enter the competition, regardless of whether Cooper mentions that the giant is warning him or not. Um, you know, which he won't do. Um, all of these suspicions are still worth exploring, but, um, you know, regardless of whether Annie's genuine or being steered, um, exploring love is still good for Cooper. You know, it's like how, you know, Mike being under the spell of Nadine and feeding into her obviously untrue delusion, um, it still ends up being good for Mike's personal growth and empathy. You know, this is good for Cooper, whether it's Lodge-related or with an actual human being. Because the fact is true. He has kept his heart locked away for too long. Um, you know, regardless of the outcome that he repeats mistakes that he made when falling for Caroline, it's it's still a good instinct for Cooper to try again right here. Because, you know, the only way to get out of the darkness is to push through the darkness and grow the light. Just like how Annie wanted to come back to Twin Peaks to confront the trauma that um, made her run away and cocoon in a convent. Um, they're, they're similar. They're good for each other. Um, <clears throat> you know, Cooper's on a good path here. Um, uh, you know, he's just not paying attention to the road that he's on, you know, especially not for oncoming traffic going the wrong way, like Wyndham Earl. Um, yeah. So there's still a lot to struggle with, <laughs> but there's still a lot of good growth. And I, um, I recommend if you're like an Annie hater of some variety that you should look at her, um, you know, what, you know, like she's a human who's trying to reconnect and is actually good for Cooper. You know, I, I think, I think that might help balance out your view on this section of the season too. Um, but yeah, so, uh, we, um, we could go into all the details from future episodes about this, but let's let's do that in future episodes. Uh, so, yeah, we um, we're right here at the sign off. So you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and 25YL Radio. <clears throat> if you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social and Blue Ro at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. View ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Retro Futurist Culture and Brevity Box. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my full Electricity Nexus column at 25yearslaterside.com. And join us on Discord at 25YL, a Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to blue rose task force podcast at gmail.com or contact us on any of our socials and uh we will see you next time as we look into episode 27 the 28th overall episode of twin peaks until then listeners i'll see you in my dreams i wish you the best of luck
to kind of deepen and expand the universe that the show takes place in.